Peter Neumann is Principal Scientist at SRI International, an engineering research laboratory, and also edits the Risk Digest for ACM. This is Peter Neumann. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with Peter Neumann. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. Very much. Happy to be here. Um, so you're someone who you have... Um, you're based in computer science in that world and in the world of security, um, but certainly you have a wide range of interests. Um, there are a number of things I wanted to touch on with you, uh, artificial intelligence, um, some of the music that you've created, um, uh, you know, chips being implanted in the brain, security risks there. But it's been about a year since we last talked and the computer architecture that you're working on is supposed to the idea of it is supposed to revolutionize computer security and make um, computers a lot more safe. Has there been any uh, substantial progress, anything that you can update listeners on? Yeah, last a year ago, things were uh, kind of slow because of the pandemic and uh, uh, ARM had, uh, I think, announced that it was embedding uh, the Cherry architecture, C-H-E-R-I, um, which is joint from SRI in Cambridge, in the UK, University of Cambridge, um, into their mainline uh, product uh, specifications. But uh, it was still a, a mystery as to how that was going to work out. Uh, in the last weeks, uh, they have started delivering actual um, uh, chips and, and boards, <coughs> sorry, system on chip boards <coughs> with what they're calling Morello. And Morello is the uh, embedding of the Cherry architecture hardware uh, into the ARM architecture. There's also RISC-V uh, Cherry, and there's several real-time operating systems that go with that. FreeBSD running free arm. Uh, we formally proved the correctness of the specification of the Cherry Arm uh, Morello boards, uh, where the chip uh, specification is is formally specified, and we've actually proven that uh, formally that it satisfies the properties that are needed for security. Uh, of course, we're dealing with with uh, trustworthiness and security is just one piece of that. I think I probably mentioned to you a year ago that I deal with uh, safety and reliability and uh, resilience and robustness and uh, predictable performance and so on. Um, so all of a sudden we now have physical hardware for the uh, chips that we've been designing since 2010. So we're in now the uh, the twelfth year of our government-sponsored project, and uh, there is real hardware to go with it. So this represents a, uh, a very considerable uh, improvement over what we had a year ago, and uh, makes it look much more realistic about how this might actually play in your laptops and uh, servers. Well, in in your cell phones uh, in somewhere in the future. So that, that's, that's really uh, quite significant uh, progress. 
and a lot of it's due to the guys in Cambridge who've been working very closely with uh, with ARM, and a lot of it's due to uh, to ARM's willingness to uh, uh, to pursue all this. It's also due to Microsoft and and uh, Google and others who have been playing with the hardware uh, in uh, in FPGA implementation. And Microsoft, for example, discovered that uh, probably 70 or 80 percent of their uh, many vulnerabilities in Windows and other systems and applications are memory management problems. Right. And they noticed that uh, Cherry, uh, almost free of charge, uh, gets rid of all of those vulnerabilities. The classic one is, is the buffer overflow, which uh, I was part of the Multics team back in 1965, which solved that. And yet the rest of the industry completely ignored that for, uh, for 55 years. And here we are in, in, in the Cherry architecture, completely uh, uh, being able to, to deal with buffer overflows 100%. Uh, so this this is quite a uh, an achievement in itself, in that we're able to do things that uh, have not been possible in the past uh, in in commercial hardware. They can now be done in in the Cherry Morello chips and boards, and they can now be done in Cherry Risk Five. So that's uh, that's a quick overview of what's happened in the last year. Yeah, and, and the fact that you mentioned that at one point in time with Multics, you would solve the buffer overflow pr problem, um, yeah. and yet industry was not interested in this. It appears that that's changed now. That has changed. They suddenly, well, by, by maybe five years ago, most of the exploits were using buffer overflows. <laughs> um, this is uh, still around. It, it's but but there are many other so many other vulnerabilities that can be exploited now that uh, <clears throat> the buffer overflow problem is only one of a massive number of, uh, of well-known vulnerabilities in existing systems uh, plus the fact that you've got zero day problems where uh, people keep discovering uh, new things that the, the commercial systems have not yet uh, resolved. <clears throat> and so the zero to exploit is something that happens uh, before there's any hope of, uh, of resolving it. And those are pretty, pretty damning. And I think, again, in, in the cherry architecture, we're taking care of a lot of things that haven't happened yet without even knowing it because of the highly principled way in which the system was developed. The hardware and the software are all highly based on, on uh, established principles that are also being ignored widely in the, in the real world community. There's uh, another security question that, that I wanted to ask you, where uh, in the email that you had sent back to me. You, um, you, you, oh, can you hear me? I'm OK now. Yeah. OK. Um, in the in the email that you had sent back to me, um, and I had asked about your thoughts on AI, one of the things you said is you worry about the overemphasis on deep learning in life critical applications. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, the, the the real problem with artificial intelligence more generally 
whether it's deep learning or speech understanding or, or, or interpreting uh, video, um, is that there are too many false positives and false negatives. <clears throat> it's uh, typically a, a non-determinist alg algorithm, um, or even if it's deterministic, it's, it's uh, doing something that is based on perhaps false training data uh, it's based on false uh, implementations of uh, inadequate algorithms. Uh, so I always worry that uh, anything where you believe that something that is based on artificial intelligence or deep learning or whatever is completely trustworthy, uh, I would think that's probably fallacious. So I, I worry about life-critical systems, which are based on... Uh, uh, on typically uh, false assumptions of bad data. Uh, they're trained against something that uh, may not be what you really want, but you don't know that. Uh, to consider the idea of uh, uh, missile-carrying drones or, or armed drones in some way, uh, where we're going to be taking out some uh, uh, foreign uh, ruler or or they're going to be used to train uh, against our own uh, domestic uh, violence and terrorism. Um, and you've got an algorithm that you've trained to look for a particular face. Now, how good is face recognition? Uh, if, if it's a system that's been trained on a particular database of, of known terrorists, it misses all of the unknown terrorists. If it's trained on the faces of, of, of a particular uh, person that you're trying to assassinate, um, and it's trained on straight-on facial uh, shots, or or shots that, that are uh, taken from a distance at an angle, um, you may have the wrong person when you come up with a supposed match. Right. Same, same thing happened with fingerprints, same thing happened with all sorts of things. Where the algorithm is not to compare the fingerprint with, with the real fingerprint, it's to compare a hash of the fingerprint. And how do you know whether that's a good algorithm or not? Well, you run it on a lot of training data, and it seems to work just fine. And then you run it on the real data, and it gives you the wrong person, or it gives you... Uh, something that uh, is, is totally fallacious. Um, and the problem, uh, going back to the formal proof stuff that we did with our hardware, we have formal proofs that the hardware will behave, at least the specification, doesn't have any fundamental laws of a particular type. There's no way you can do that with artificial intelligence because it depends on the data, the training data, it depends on the... Uh, people who have trained it, who have a uh, vicarious uh, desire to do something evil. Uh, so they've trained it to do evil instead of good. Uh, so my, my fundamental belief is that if you are building a system that has very stringent requirements for, uh, for trustworthiness, uh, you got to be very careful when you use any AI, whether it's deep learning or, or speech recognition or or anything else yeah and, and remember remember when you have false positives out of uh, uh, a small database 
maybe there are only one or two people that, that are affected. When you have uh, a database that includes uh, 300 million people, or worse yet, uh, several billion, yeah. um, you have no idea if the, if the uh, if you have, uh, let's say you have a, a billion and your, um, your percentage of false positives and false negatives is something like a tenth of a percent. You're still dealing with a million people. Yeah. And that doesn't scale. Does that make sense? Uh, totally. Um, a, a couple, I, I'm not saying I'm, I agree with these counter arguments, but the counter arguments that uh, people would give. I mean, of course, you're talking, um, there, there have been cases in, um, in, in life critical applications where uh, they, they picked up, you know, some random uh, black kid off the street for some crime that he didn't commit because of facial recognition technology. And it turns out the people la labeling the training, training data of like African-American people's faces were a lot of uh, white people who you maybe couldn't tell the difference between one black person and another. And it wound up really hurting people's lives. Um, and that's, that's one example, but it seems like it's, um, it seems like it's a big problem. However, what the pro AI people would say, I think two things would be one, um, even if there is a certain amount of false positives, it, it, there's always false positives. It, it, it's sort of, um, it, it's like in self-driving cars. If, if self-driving cars sometimes cause unnecessary crashes, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that self-driving cars are a bad thing if they cause a lower number than human-driven cars. Um, in other words, if the justice system imprisons 10 false people from some AI algorithm, as opposed to 100 based on the whims of some judge who's just, you know, eating lunch and is a little tired, um, wouldn't that still be an improvement? Well, I, you see, that's an interesting argument. The question is, what are you? What is your metric for success? In AI, the metric for success is a local metric that looks only at the, uh, the, the the little piece of the algorithm that you're dealing with and that you've implemented. The trustworthiness argument says the whole damn system has to be trustworthy enough that so nobody can subvert all of your AI. And the problem is you can't today, you can't trust the software, you can't trust the hardware. Uh, hardware can be subverted as we've discovered in the last uh, five years or so. Uh, software is easily subverted. There, there are hundreds of thousands of uh, vulnerabilities in the, in the the MITRE uh, repository of common uh, vulnerabilities. Um, and you can't trust the, the users not to make mistakes. They may be well-intentioned, but they can still make lots of mistakes. Uh, you've had the cases of, of the Therac 25 where uh, several people were, were, uh, uh, were killed by intense radiation when they operator of the system thought he had switched into the uh, from the research mode into the, uh, the therapeutic mode. So there are there are human errors that are possible here. 
And then you have to worry about all of the hackers uh, who are going to break into your system and the insider misuse uh, of people who want to rig the results to prove exactly what they believe is the way to do it. So yeah. your argument or the, the, the common argument uh, is that, well, you can always tolerate some, some small uh, uh, percentage of, uh, of deaths in the automated cars. Uh, we're now talking about flying cars, wherever everybody can fly his own. And uh, that, that will be a, a real challenge because at scale, uh, when you have uh, as many automobiles flying or, or small planes or whatever they are, um, uh, and anywhere anybody can go anywhere he wants with no oversight, uh, you've got a problem. So in the small, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not trashing artificial intelligence in the mm -hmm. small. I'm just saying that when you put it into a critical system, uh, it may not do what you think it's going to do for one of these many reasons. You can't trust the hardware, you can't trust the software, you can't trust the applications, uh, and you can't trust all of the people who have insider access to, to rig the system to do what they want it to. Plus all of the attackers who can break to it because it's not destroyed. So if you, if you can't trust anything, how can you trust the AI? You can trust the AI in the small, but you can't trust it in the total system sense. I see. Um, the, the other counter argument that the, the AI people would give would be to conceive that, yes, you are right. As of this time, uh, it is probably unwise to put AI in as you say, life critical applications. But what about when we have what's sometimes called artificial general intelligence uh, or even a super intelligence that's uh, more intelligent than any human could possibly be and it can start improving on itself and correcting all these errors and create a new spiffy version of AI that doesn't have any of these problems. Well, that may be, that may be fatuous. It's a lovely concept. Right. Um, Turing talked about the Turing test long ago, or other people talked about Turing and, and his, his test, and they called it the Turing test. Um, can you tell the difference between a machine and, and, uh, and a person? Um, uh, Weizenbaum, back in the MIT days, when he did, created the, uh, um, the, the virtual psychiatrist, Wonderful program. I, I had a lot of fun with that. Um, and it fooled a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was obviously created by a human in the best ability they could. And if the training process that you're talking about is, is fallacious to begin with, you're going to train it to do things that you didn't think were appropriate. So in, this, in the case of what you're talking about, you don't know. This is this is the old story about the unknown, the unknown unknowns. Uh, there are things that you don't realize at the time when you're designing this thing, and you can have a massive collection of things that won't work in this super intelligent self-training world uh, that would be uh, very damning. For example, the ability to to train it to uh, to do horrible things 
that destroy the planet or or one country or whatever you like. Um, so I, I think the arguments uh, against AI are not arguments against AI per se. They're arguments against embedding it in critical systems. And the arguments for AI are arguments in the small. And I, I've said this two or three times in different ways yeah. already today. Um, that uh, that the algorithm is actually doing a wonderful thing. If you can train an algorithm to, to detect cancer or the presence of, of um, a uh, um, pandemic uh, when it's just beginning, and uh, you can do this with any precision at all, uh, that may be greatly beneficial. But to use it in, in cases where it is the determining factor. For example, replacing a jury in a trial in which most of the evidence had been hidden, or replacing it, replacing the judge in a similar situation, or replacing a doctor in surgery. Uh, I just heard a horrible story about a very close friend of mine uh, who uh, it was a case in which the the wrong kidney was removed oh. by, by the surgeon, and uh, that that kind of thing is always going to happen, just because nobody's perfect. And to say that the computer is more perfect than the human is is a pretty far reach, when the computers were all built by humans, who were fallible in the first place. Now, we've, when I talk about the formal proofs of correctness that show that the hardware design that we have come up with is in fact capable of satisfying certain critical security properties, that's a step forward. But it still doesn't prove that the actual implementation, which may have been done in a foreign country, hasn't put in Trojan horses and, and claws and uh, things that uh, could stop the system on a given time scale um, worldwide, because there's a, there's a, something in the chip that says they have the ability to shut down every computer in the world that, that uses that chip. Um, you don't know. You simply cannot guarantee that uh, something is going not that something is going to be correct in its actual implementation and its functioning. Now, does that help at all? Yeah, uh, no, certainly. Um, I, I am curious uh, on this note then, when I, I brought up the term artificial general intelligence, um, yeah. do, do you have any strong feelings about that? Does that, it seems very vague to me. Um, well, I, think, I think it's very vague. Yeah. Um, I was just reading about the, uh, the, uh, the general quantum solution to solve the, uh, quantum gravity problem. Um, and uh, this is something that Einstein worked on a long, long time ago, spent his lifetime trying to uh, resolve it. Uh, we still don't have it. The idea that a computer is going to be smart enough to figure that out 
without understanding all of the physics and all of the parameters and, and uh, all of the uh, data that's been acquired, uh, but not published uh, over, the, over the centuries, um, is, I think, uh, pushing the envelope a little bit uh, too far. Do you think that's true right now, or that will be permanently true? Um, look, my, my fundamental belief here is, let's take the extreme example, <laughs> where we believe that the system that we have designed, the Cherry system, <clears throat> um, is, um, is secure in some sense, or is highly trustworthy. Uh, there's still lots of things that can go wrong. So the idea that something is going to be a universal theory of everything that has been trained as the result of artificial intelligence, again, seems to me to be uh, something that may never happen. And I would say it's very unlikely to happen. Although there have been mathematicians who have said, I mean, like the four color theorem, for instance, was it, the, the proof of it was set up by humans, but it was ultimately accomplished by a computer. Uh, and that was a very important problem for many years in math. Yeah, it was and, an essentially an exhaustive enumeration of hundreds of thousands of cases. Right. Um, and then, then trying to prove that those were complete, that those covered all possible cases. Yeah. It, it, you know, that, that's, uh, that's a different way of trying to prove something. Certainly. Um, but it, it does seem, I, I feel as though, um, I don't know if the term artificial general intelligence will stick around. I agree, it seems vague. But it, it seems that there will be computers more and more involved in proof making in the future. Yeah, and I it, agree. And it, it does seem that uh, some form of artificial intelligence perhaps we'll be able to take a series of premises and draw a conclusion uh, and, and prove a theorem. Um, now, is it, is it artificial intelligence or is it simply logic? Um, good question, because I, I, I would imagine there have to be some, uh, what we would call creative leaps in the, in the creation of any of these proofs. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure, but I, I, a lot of people, and I might just be naive on this, uh, would, would say that some form of AI will almost certainly be more heavily involved in um, scientific and mathematical research in the future to the yeah. point where maybe a lot, like when you mentioned medicine, um, I think it's radiology, where a lot of radiologists are being replaced by um, AI, which does a better job of detecting, and um, perhaps that can be extended outwards. I don't know, but yeah, but it's, it's still it's still um, dependent on how thorough the process is. <clears throat> if if you're doing uh, CAT scans or something like that, and uh, you're only getting the front view and not the back view. Um, you, you've come to a completely different conclusion than if you had the back view, because it's different. Hmm. And so you, you, today's CAT scans are usually uh, from the front uh, in many, 
many cases. <clears throat> and if your data is wrong, <clears throat> you have a problem. Now, if you're the other thing is, is the analogy I make is, is that uh, uh, the average programmer may be very good at writing code. But uh, very few programmers can write code for trustworthy systems. It's more than an art form. It's, it's a, a discipline, an un incredible discipline. And there was the IBM thing of the clean room where you, where you had uh, uh, a bunch of people working in, in immaculate conditions where every line of code they, they write is vetted in some way. Um, formal proving of, of code has come a long way. And you can prove the correctness of the code locally. But now we get back to the problem of how to fit it in, into the system, which has co um, com compromisable hardware, compromisable operating systems, and uh, users who are uh, 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 of questionable uh, integrity because they're insiders and they can rig anything they want. Take voting machines, for example. The traditional problem with voting machines is that they can be rigged, rigged to do anything. Electronic ones. Electronically, or, or externally as well. <clears throat> but uh, the, the point is, if you, if you can't trust people today to write code that fits into a system in such a way that the whole system is still secure. Um, that is is a real again this this leap of faith that uh, you you have come to the conclusion that it's okay because you think you know everything that you needed to know. And the answer is there will always be things that you didn't think about. There's no way you can anticipate everything that's going to go wrong. Yeah. So I, I guess we're, we're barking up the same tree here in sure. some sense. <clears throat> You're looking at it in the small, I'm looking at it in the large. As, as I think I probably mentioned last time, uh, I'm often called the designated holist because I always look at the big picture. And most other people are not trained to do that. Um, I'm not trained to do that. I, I, mean, I just learned that uh, this is the problem that we have to confront. Uh, it's the total system problem, and if you can't trust, again, I'm going to repeat this multiple times, right. you can't trust the hardware, you can't trust the software, and if you can't trust the software, you can't trust the applications. And in all of those cases, you can't trust all of the insiders who have access to it all. So the idea that uh, this general theory of artificial intelligence is going to be uh, better, if you will, then all of the efforts that have been going on in the past, uh, I started writing code in 1953. Uh, that's uh, almost 70 years ago. Um, and I've seen an awful lot of terrible code. Yeah. Did I mention to you last time the, the, the exam question that I wrote for uh, a course, on, an introductory course in computers? I don't think so. Where uh, you had to write a five-line program, and uh, one of the students 
made three errors in his five-line program. He had a buffer overflow. He had a he had a uh, off by one count, and I'm still trying to remember what the third one was. But uh, here, here's a five-line code with three bugs. Uh, you take a look at the, the hundreds of thousands of lines of, of or millions of code lines of code in, in some of these big operating systems. How can you write something that has no flaws? Yeah. And artificial intelligence isn't going to do that. Logic, the flaws. But that, that still doesn't prove to you that somebody's not going to misuse the system because he has insider access. So what I'm, what I'm trying to get across here is very simply that there are always things that you norm, normally don't think about that could undermine the integrity of everything. Yeah. So the idea that there's, a, there's one magic solution that's going to solve all these problems to me is ludicrous. It, yes, it does feel very much like the, um, I, I heard some AI researcher, Lex Friedman, if you've heard of him, uh, describe what some people call like the AI super intelligence as the equivalent in martial arts of the five fingers of death, like this uh, magical move that doesn't really exist. Um, but you know, the same, the same thing can be said of, of cryptography, except that Cryptography is based on deep mathematics. So you can prove that an algorithm is sound. You can't prove that the cryptography cannot be undermined by a hardware error or an operating system flaw, which allows you to find the secret key. Right. Okay. So it completely destroys the integrity and the confidentiality of, of the cryptography. Uh, and yet it's the same argument I'm making with artificial intelligence, that if you can't trust the system, then all bets are off. Yeah. And you know, I think we've beaten this one to death enough. No, no, no. I, I agree. I agree. I was going to move on to something. Um, the, I, I was talking to uh, a friend recently who works at uh, Tesla and he's a big, Elon Musk fan and yeah. we're talking about uh, Neuralink, which when we talk about security and can't trust the hardware, et cetera, are, are you baffled by people who are so eager to put a chip in their brain? Um, yeah. The, 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 the folks who talk about this ignore, of course, uh, ignore security and integrity completely. Uh, there, there was this time uh, when Cheney had a pacemaker, I guess, and, and, uh, it was online because his doctor could reprogram it from a distance and so could anybody else. Yeah. So it's the same problem. It's the whole body is a trustworthy system. When things start to fail, other things start to fail as well. And um, you, you can't assure that the whole system is going to work consistently all the time. So if you put a chip in your brain, I, I've got a, a very close colleague friend who has five little prods in his, in his brain and it's controlling his Parkinsonism. Okay. And uh, when it's turned on, uh, he is absolutely normal. When he turns it off, he's, he's back to all of the Parkinsonism uh, symptoms, uh, but it works. 
Now, it could also be uh, reprogrammed by somebody at a distance if it has an online uh, control system that happens to have a, uh, an internet interface. And uh, so if you're going to build something like that, it damn well better be trustworthy, right? Yeah. And at the moment, there's no system in the world that can do that. So the idea that you're going to put a chip in your brain that's, that's going to learn everything for you and, and if you have a stroke, it's going to completely reprogram your brain so that you can continue to, to do things that you couldn't do after the stroke. This is wonderful. This is great. I have no, no qualms about uh, prostheses like that. Uh, that. That's a wonderful thing to do. And if it has artificial intelligence in it, as well as logic uh, and sensible programming practice, then it's a, it's a, it's a clear win. On the other hand, if it doesn't have security and, and uh, protection against uh, compromise, or it doesn't have a, uh, an external battery or, or some way of recharging it when you're in a place where there's no internet, like you go into one of these valleys in the mountains where there's no absolutely no cell coverage and never will be um, in, in all reasonable sense, um, then um, it may turn out that you don't have the internet, you don't have the access to your own device. We've had, we've had this story with, with the guy who went to Rolling Rock Park and, and uh, had uh, forgotten his, dong his uh, uh, key dongle. And uh, then he got into the, uh, the park and he discovered that he couldn't start his engine simply because there was no uh, network connection. So uh, if you had this, I'm just, I'm hypothesizing here yeah. that if you had a device like this, it would have to have connectivity, network connectivity to control it. Uh, if something goes tremendously haywire, you'd want to be able to shut it off or, or you'd want to be able to reprogram it on the fly when you discover that there's a fundamental software flaw uh, or when the vendor uh, contacts you and said, by the way, that thing we just installed in your brain, uh, there's, a, there's a serious security flaw and you've got to upload the software immediately. Otherwise, you're likely to be uh, targeted because it's a zero-day attack that is on the way already and everybody with this device in it is now uh, subject to uh, attack. Um, and it's well known. There's a document. There's a list of everybody who's ever had this chip implanted, which we own, but it's been stolen by the, the hacking community. And now everybody who's ever had this chip in his brain is, is vulnerable. I, I'm just yeah winging this stuff on the fly here. I, I I've never thought of that one before. But totally possible. Totally possible. Sure. Yeah. Um, on, I, I don't know if this is an area of interest for you, um, but I did want to ask you because it, it roughly touches on questions of security um, and uh, the, the, the cryptocurrency phenomenon uh, and blockchain technology underlying it. Well, you're, you're really going everywhere in 
today that uh, that impossible i I mean well as you said holistic thinking and and you um you do tend to think uh very broadly so i i assume that um you you have an opinion on a lot of things um I, i think cryptocurrency has several problems one is if it is truly um, uh, non-hackable and uh, anonymized, and you lose all your your you lose the key to your your cryptocurrency, you're out of everything you've invested in. There's no way to recover. If you believe that it's um, secure, when it's not. Uh, you also are vulnerable. If you believe that it's going to take over all uh, applications of all kinds are going to take over the world, uh, there are a lot of folks who've been saying, oh, let's use it for for electronic voting. Well, it's a a journaling system. That's a a complete misuse of of the technology. because it's not going to solve the the real problems of voting systems, which is that there's no integrity in the hardware and the software, and, and we're back to the same problem again. Right. Um, so everything we are talking about here today seems to come back to the same issue, and I, I don't want to be repetitive here and say that no, no. So it's, a big, it's a total system problem, and nobody's looking at it as a total system problem. And there are a lot of things that can go wrong here. Uh, one, of, one of which is that the whole system can collapse because it's basically a Ponzi scheme. So in that sense, you may lose big time uh, if you're using it for the wrong kind of application. Now, there are, there are applications where it would make sense, but voting is not one of them. What are some of the applications where it makes sense? I'm not going to go into that. I, I, I don't. I've never thought through. Uh, I, I believe people believe that uh, there are there are some applications in, in journaling, for example. Yeah. Where you're keeping a, you're keeping a uh, a unique record for the lifetime of something over generations of people and generations of computer systems. And that kind of stuff would be great. But putting cryptocurrency in there, I think, is is a huge mistake. You you know, one of the interesting things that just occurred to me as as we're talking here, uh, for my work, uh, I started working with this person who's like a data privacy expert and has been brought on to several companies who have been breached and their data has been stolen and they've been, uh, the hackers demand a ransom. And one yeah. of the things I didn't realize is how many companies just pay the ransom and, yeah. just, and just keep quiet about it. And of course, that is feeding the, the, the ransomware folks because this, this it has its payoff. Yeah. Saying, oh my God, this, this works. We're, we're making a fortune on this. Even if we only get one in a hundred or whatever who, who pays, and it's actually much higher than that. Yeah. Um, the idea of paying for ransomware has got several problems. One is you're using an operating system that is easily penetrated. That's a mistake to begin with. 
The second is if you had adequate backup and retrieval, periodic retrieval, so you know that your backup is actually working. Because the typical backup may not work when you try to use it. If you have adequate backup facilities, there's no reason to pay. You just reboot, wipe the system clean, do a cold reboot, and, and then uh, reload your, your backup stuff. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, 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 no, and, and it's... Yeah, but um, but now, we, now we get to the problem that people don't think in the long run. This, this is the same argument as the holistic argument about looking at the whole system. Yeah. The next one is, is how does this work 100 years from now? Uh, we go back to the Y2K problem. I, I mentioned to you probably that we, we solved the Y2K problem in, in, uh, in Multics in 1965 uh, until uh, 2034 or whatever the date was that the, 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 the Multics ran out of, uh, of clock. But by then, there's no, there's no, uh, Unix was the 2034. Um, by then, there's no, uh, uh, there's no Multics anymore. But there's still COBOL. So we, we got to 2000. And then a lot of places put in a one-year patch. And then the system broke at 2001. Some of the systems used a 20-year rollover. That if the date is is within uh, zero to nineteen, uh, I'm sorry. If if it's eighty one to zero, then it's the last century. If it's uh, the rest, it's it's the next century. And of course, that worked. Uh, that's not quite what I'm trying to say. The the, the fix was, if if it's zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, up to nineteen. Okay. Uh, then it would be this century. It would be this century, and otherwise it would be last century. Okay, and that works until 2020. Yeah. So, so we just had a whole bunch of 2022k uh, uh, crashes uh, because the patch that was put in in 2002 was a 22 was a 20 year rolling patch. Okay. Yeah. So it all failed in 2022. And there were a whole slew of those that I wrote about in, in the risks forum. So every every time there's another new year, there are systems to get the aftermath of the Y2K problem. So COBOL is still around. There's still COBOL programs that have two digit years. And one of the answers would be to stop using COBOL. But the same thing's going to happen again in, in 2023 and 2024 and 2040 and, uh, and so on. Because short-sighted solutions, now this gets us back to backup. Yeah. The, the, the cost of including backup is not trivial, but it's relatively minor, very, very, very small if you do it right. And if you're worried about ransomware because you've got an operating system that is completely compromisable and you are dumb enough to click on things that you shouldn't be clicking on, right. then 
having a backup system that is uh, capable of restoring the system uh, to any state that you want it to be restored to would be a damn good idea. And if you say, well, that's too expensive or too complicated, or we don't have the staff to do it, you can outsource it to the cloud, or you can do all kinds of things with it. Uh, you have, now you have to trust the cloud, of course, and that's dangerous because the cloud may, may go bankrupt and, and everything that's out there may disappear. Um, so you want to do this in-house if you can. But uh, the idea that uh, you should never pay the ransom um, because you have a, an adequate backup system seems to make perfect sense to me. And the argument that it's, it's too complicated or too expensive or, or it requires too much thinking of the future when the only thing they're worried about is, is instantaneous profits yeah. in, in a commercial undertaking that doesn't give a damn about the future. Uh, well, short-sightedness is, is a critical problem here. Um, we're, we're approaching a, an hour here. Um, so, and I know I've asked uh, questions on a variety of subjects, and I hope that's okay. Uh, yeah, let's go. Is, um, is there anything before we go here uh, that you feel that people should know or that, uh, you know, a place where people can reach you and learn more if they're interested? Well, just look at my website, and uh, there are a ton of papers. The uh, this, the uh, stuff on the Cherry Architecture is on my on my website, and it's on the Cambridge website. Uh, Google Cherry and research, and uh, um, Cambridge, and you get the uh, website. Um, I have no wisdom other than the kinds of things that I'm telling you here. There are no easy solutions. And everybody's looking for the magic bullet or the silver silver bullet or whatever. And it doesn't exist. So the idea that there's this universal AI that's going to solve all problems is ludicrous. The idea that um, uh, a, a, trusted, a trustworthy computer system is going to solve all your problems is ludicrous, even if you have one which you don't have yet, but maybe I do. Um, but that's not good enough. There are too many other things that can go wrong. And nobody's reading my book anymore. It was 15 years ago or 17 years ago now that I wrote it. And everything that's happened and described in that book is still happening today, pretty much, in one form or another. What's the name of it for people to... Computer-related computer risks. Okay. And it's a, it's a documentation of security, reliability, availability, uh, integrity, uh, human safety, uh, everything else that can go wrong. Y2K problems uh, in anticipation. I think we had a couple of uh, uh, clock problems that were of interest uh, before Y2K. And we certainly had uh, other kinds of problems that, that uh, uh, that are still happening today. Um, all of the shuttle problems, all of the, uh, the power, uh, power grid problems, where we still get power failures, propagating power failures. Uh, all of that was, was talked about in, in 1995 in the book. 
So I, I, I've published everything I can publish at this point that, that is of any value to anybody, and all I have to do is dig it a little bit. But there's no, there's no easy answer to any of the things we talked about. And the idea that a little magical AI is going to solve everything is, is just not nonsense. It's just nonsense. The, the idea that cryptocurrency is, is a solution to a problem that doesn't exist uh, doesn't help. Uh, or is it, there are problems that exist, but, but they're not the ones that uh, are conceived. Uh, for example, the cryptocurrency itself, not the, not the blockchain mechanism. The blockchain mechanism is, is worthy. Um, the, the lack of backups, all of this stuff is, is just common sense. Do it right in the first place and uh, you'll do much better. So the, the wisdom here is that uh, we continue to make mistakes. We continue to make the same kinds of mistakes. And through all of that, we don't learn anything. So my message is, for God's sakes, let's learn from the past. Let's understand all of the risks and, and read my risks forum, ACM risks forum, risks.org as a list of every issue I put out since 1985. And I put out another one yesterday. So this is still ongoing 37 years later. And, and the, the, the readers of that will continually say when, when they see a, a, some, a, some harebrained solution that uses AI or crypto currency or, or blockchains or whatever for something that has no applicability whatsoever in the real world. They would always say, what could possibly go wrong? And that's the running joke in the ACM risks forum. What could possibly go wrong? Harebrained hair -brained ideas with no understanding of all of the issues we've been talking about today. Is that enough for today? <laughs> that's, I, I think that's a, a beautiful note to end it on, is what could possibly... Okay, you wanted to get into music and poetry and all kinds of other things. We'll do that next year. Let's do it. Um, Peter, I, I love talking to you, uh, and I love the holistic thinking. Um, I love your perspective. Thank you once again very much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you to Peter Neumann, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.